We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cast. Good morning. Architectural flourishes abound in Baltimore. They're part of what makes Charm City charming. Long stretches of brick row homes, scrubbed marble stoops, formstone facades. Linda Rabin would add stained glass to that list. Transplanted to Baltimore from Montgomery County, she started noticing stained glass in homes, in public buildings, not only worship spaces. Rabin dove into researching who made this art glass and how it came to be in so many places around Baltimore. The result is her book, Through a Glass Darkly, The Social History of Stained Glass in Baltimore. Linda Rabin is an associate research professor of anthropology at the University of Maryland. Through a Glass Darkly is her 11th book, and she's here with me to talk about it. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Sheila. I want listeners to get a sense of how you fell in love with stained glass. Tell us briefly about spotting a large round window high up on the wall of a house in Bolton Hill. That was several months after I started the research. Um, I was walking in Bolton Hill and happened to look up. And two and a half stories up on a corner house was a very large round window with an elaborate design. So I I wanted to see if I could get into the house because stained glass usually looks much better from inside than from outside. So I went to the front door and I was able to go into the vestibule. There were a lot of uh, door buzzers there. So I just pushed a lot of them and somebody actually came down and let me into the building. And uh, he was uh, apparently an Eastern European gentleman And I said, I'd like to see the stained glass windows that are up on the third floor. And he said, what is stained glass? He didn't know that in English, apparently. So I told him, and he just waved me up to go up and look at it. And I was just knocked over by it. It's very large, must be at least five or six feet around and a very complex pattern, late 19th century, apparently not signed, as usually stained glass windows are not. So there was a mystery attached to it. And I went back downstairs and tried to find out more about that house. So I called up the State Department of Assessments and Taxation, where there are a lot of public records, when houses were built, and uh, who were the first owners, Yeah, it seemed like you did a lot of research, visiting, knocking on doors, talking to neighbors. You document that there are hundreds, maybe thousands of homes around Baltimore with stained glass, windows, side lights, transoms. How did that come to be? It has to do with uh, the contractors that actually built those houses. But before that happened, um, in the late 19th century, There were windows in churches, and many people would go to church and see the windows, and apparently they wanted to have similar windows in their homes. So um, the contractors, I believe, were members of Catholic churches in the neighborhoods where they started building. So there are two. uh, One of them is Frank Novak, who was called the two-story king of East Baltimore, because he built thousands of row houses. And he was building in the early 20th century? Yes. And so he 
would order these windows in bulk, and he would install them in many row houses. If you go down to Wilkins Avenue in South Baltimore, the 2600 block is, it's the longest row house block perhaps in the world. It's got like 100 houses, and it's a, a long row, and, and apparently all of those houses had big picture windows that were stained glass. And these were houses built for factory workers. Yes, they were. And this was affordable housing, late 19th century style. But you write that a big part of the story of stained glass in Baltimore is the story of segregation, both racial and religious segregation, ethnic segregation. Help us understand that. Well, I became aware that there were some neighborhoods where there were quite a lot of stained glass windows and other neighborhoods where you just couldn't find them. And I I wanted to understand why that would be. So I did find that builders like Frank Novak would be building houses for white Christian working-class families or middle-class families who were fleeing the center of, of town to go out to the suburbs in the late 19th, early 20th century. So these neighborhoods... Uh, At first, they were actually restricted by law. Baltimore was the first city in the United States to actually pass a law that mandated racial segregation in neighborhoods. Redlining. Yes, but it's before redlining. Oh, that's right. This is around 1910 or 1911. And um, two black lawyers took this law to the U.S. Supreme Court, which said, you can't do that because it would restrict freedom of trade. You should be able to buy and sell property wherever you want. So it was declared unconstitutional, but then uh, local builders and others found ways around it, and that's through restrictive covenants and later redlining. Right, I'm trying to understand how that relates to stained glass. These neighborhoods that were restricted, they were restricted by race, religion, and ethnicity, were neighborhoods where people could afford to have stained glass windows installed in their homes. These were always luxury items. So it helped that the builders were going out to the suburbs and they were installing these windows. So you come across, for example, a Northern Parkway near where I live. There are long lines of detached houses along Northern Parkway. And many of them have two stained glass panels on the side of the house, probably on either side of a fireplace. So this was a luxury decorative element that the builders advanced as a way of decorating people's houses. But the people who moved into those houses were white and Christian, by and large. There were very few neighborhoods that black developers set up for black families to live in. And they didn't have stained glass windows, I suspect, because the the developer and the residents did, could not afford to have these decorative elements in their houses. That's anthropologist Linda Rabin. On the record on WIPR, I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about her book, Through a Glass Darkly, The Social History of Stained Glass in Baltimore. It's full of photos, most of which she took herself. You took your title from the New Testament, St. Paul's first letter to the Christians in Corinth. 
I, I'm not sure I get the significance of through a glass darkly. You know, what St. Paul says is that we see um, reality, transcendent reality, through a filter. We can't perceive it directly. So we need to have faith to understand what reality actually is and where our salvation lies. It seems to me that in Baltimore and other cities, people would use these decorative elements to filter the reality around them. So the the beautiful stained glass panels in people's bathrooms, for example, they would shield people from outside looking in and create a, a kind of womb-like atmosphere, a protected atmosphere inside the house. So you're seeing reality, but you're seeing it through the filter of refracted light through glass, through colored glass. One of your quests was to understand who made stained glass, and you've uncovered a lot. What's the most interesting thing you found? Well, uh, many of the people that made stained glass windows were journeymen. And there were probably women who did this, but I couldn't find records of women in in Baltimore as stained glass artisans, uh, at least not between 1900 and 1940. Um, So these journeymen, they were literally traveling from city to city, and they might work on a job or work for a glass factory or a studio for several months, and then they'd have to leave and go somewhere else. So they might be living in poor neighborhoods or working-class neighborhoods, and they would often, on the side, install, make and install stained-glass windows in the neighborhoods where they lived. So you can find some poorer neighborhoods in central Baltimore, east Baltimore, where um, you wouldn't think that people would be able to afford to have these decorations, but they were probably having them made by their neighbors. Your last chapter is titled, Does Stained Glass Have a Future in Baltimore? And the answer is? Uh, When I asked some stained glass makers that question, several of them said it's pretty bleak. They are approaching retirement. Some of them have been doing this craft for 40 or 50 years, and they can't find young people who will step in and build on their legacy and continue the craft and the business in Baltimore. So the the future is murky. Well, you have plans, I understand, f- for an apprenticeship. Tell us briefly about that. What I'd like to see happen is for some local uh, educational institution, perhaps a community college, that would create a program, it would be a professional training and apprenticeship program. It would be a multi-year program. And the students would be learning from these veteran stained glass makers who have a tremendous amount of expertise and knowledge and experience to share. And at the end of this multi-year program, they would have a certificate that would say they were journeymen or journeywomen, and they should be able to take such a certificate anywhere to uh, fill these roles for studios and, and factories and other places where they're manufactured. You curated an exhibit of Baltimore stained glass makers that's up until February 4th at the Peel, the community museum near City Hall. What do you hope visitors get from that? I wanted to promote this wonderful craft of uh, beautiful objects that most people hardly even notice. And they 
know very little about the people that make them. And so I invited uh, eight or nine stained glass makers who are locals. Most of them have been doing this for a very long time. And they were thrilled by the opportunity to show their craftsmanship to the public. So um, we mounted an exhibition and uh, 85 people came to the opening. It was just astonishing. And it's been wildly successful. And I hope to build on this, to persuade, say, a community college to start a program that would train young people to carry out this kind of skilled work. Do you think there will be a market for stained glass if someone continues to be trained to do it? Uh, That's often a question, and some of the makers are asking themselves that. There's a big market for repair and restoration of the windows because they do deteriorate over time and they need to be cared for. So there are many churches that have windows that that need to be repaired or they're gonna fall down. Um, Many houses, people are also ordering new transoms particularly that look a lot like the uh, antique transoms that are in Baltimore row houses. So yes, I do think there is a market. Well, congratulations on this beautiful book and thanks for telling us about it. Thank you. We've been talking about Linda Rabin's book, Through a Glass Darkly, The Social History of Stained Glass in Baltimore. The Saturday after New Year's, January 6th, she'll give a talk and lead a tour of the stained glass at Zion Lutheran Church of the City of Baltimore, 400 East Lexington Street, one of the sites she describes in the book. That starts at 2 p.m. At the On the Record page at WYPR.org, we have links to Rabin's website and the exhibit at the Peel and how to register for the talk and tour at Zion Lutheran. Short break now on the record and then a stoop story. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us.